What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Have you ever wondered why almost every bike brand is using many of the same technologies, same materials, same parts? Or why it takes so long for new technology and material science to make their way into our bikes? Well, my guest today is Paul Farrell, co-founder and CEO of NextGen Sports. They're the startup that's stacked with some of the best-known engineers, designers, aerodynamicists, and manufacturing experts from the cycling and larger sporting goods world. And they're the ones that want to bring us the latest tech and designs direct from their designers and factories, so we don't have to wait for the big brands to budget those things in. At least, that's the concept. But like so many things, it's the details behind the plan that illuminate why the cycling industry's current business model drove them to try something different. We talk about what it takes to disrupt the industry, why the best tech and materials don't always make it into our bikes, a whole lot about Asian manufacturing, and how you could submit your own product idea and let them help you launch a business. Please welcome Paul Farrell. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Tyler. Thanks very much for uh, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah, sure. So I figured probably best to just start with a little bit about you and how you got into the cycling. And I know, you know, we spoke prior to this, and you started a company called Legera to create lightweight carbon bikes, but fill in, there's a lot of holes in that. Fill in, like, how did you get to that point? What was your entry into the cycling industry and kind of the path from there to becoming co-founder of Next Gen Sports? Well, like many things in life, it's kind of quite complicated. I suppose the my very earliest recollection with the bike industry actually came when I was back in the 60s. Uh, I'm currently 66, so I've been around quite a long while. And uh, I grew up this somewhat strange accent that your listeners may be wondering where I'm from. I'm British by birth. I have three passports. I lived in Australia for over 20 years, and I'm I'm also half Irish. So uh, yeah, I'm a bit of a mix. But I grew up in, um, I grew up and was educated in England. And uh, my earliest recollections of, of, of cycling were uh, I lived uh, for people who know London. Uh, there's a, a canal passes to the north, Grand Union Canal. I used to spend my weekends fishing stolen bicycles out of there and repairing <laughs> them. And it was a, a great grounding into the wonderful world that I would eventually transition to in my, and it was, well, now 20, 22 years ago. But, um, yeah, it taught me how to rebuild wheels and pull frames apart and uh, headset bearings in and rewrap bar tape. And I used to just sell them to friends and just get the money back. And it was just a way to supplement my uh, paper round money. But um, skipping forward then um, some 40-odd years, after I left university in, in England, I, I joined the uh, world's largest American oil exploration company. By profession, I'm a solid earth geophysicist. And I was working in the oil patch for a number of years and um, traveling all over the world and being fairly adventurous, having a great time. And then eventually I was posted to Australia in the uh, early 80s, I believe it was. And I fell in love with Australia. So I I stayed there and uh, started my own exploration company after a few years. That proved successful. And um, when I sold that, I basically semi-retired started to become what I think is now affectionately known as an entrepreneur and started writing again. And um, at that time, it was now, I think around about the early 90s, I was I was fortunate and wealthy enough to be able to afford a uh, one of the very early look graphite bikes, which was a great bike. I then bought a, a Trek OCLV, again, great bike. And uh, I was club riding. Uh, I should 
be very upfront and tell your listeners that I've never been a professional rider, never had never had the ability. I'm what's known, I guess, as a reasonably talented club rider. With the with the emphasis on reasonable, <laughs> I, I didn't win. Sorry, I, didn't, yeah. I, I like the way you put that. I might use that myself. <laughs> I didn't win too many races, but you know, I was never last. Put it that way. So yeah, I just I just got back into the sport as a way to pass time. But um, I began to realise back in the nineties that there was a sea change coming in terms of materials because I turn up at a Sunday morning crit. And I was one of the only three or four guys in a, you know, in a, in a let's say, 50-rider uh, race that was on carbon. And the other guys would pick me and say, wow, you know, he's on carbon. He must be good. And I, and I really wasn't. <laughs> but it, it kind of triggered something in me. You could say that's how the, uh, the, the Legera brand was born. The name is uh, Legera is Italian. It means light, lightweight. And my mother being Italian, it seemed like a good idea. and we. My then wife at the time uh, and I decided that it was a good good name. I, I assumed it had already been taken by an Italian brand, which it hadn't. So we um, trademarked the Legera brand and uh, we grew that in Australia for about uh, almost ten years. And it was a one hundred percent carbon frame, wheels, seat post, handlebar. We tried to do everything as high tech as we could because I saw then that that was going to be the future. Right. And what happened to that brand? Well, that's a rather sad story. Legera brand was entirely funded by myself. And as it was growing, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, um, it takes quite a lot of capital to grow a brand, especially when you're doing it internationally. And one of the first things I recognized in the brand was that if you're going to start a brand using parts out of either Taiwan or China, you really have to be there. So I actually moved to China in 2001, and I've been here ever since. So I've been, uh, I've lived in China, I lived in China running factories for 15 years. The last six years, I've been running several. Um, I have four different um, bicycle brand companies based here in Asia that design and supply product to major brands. But Legere, unfortunately, uh, fell foul to what seems to be quite a common story. As the brand grew, I decided to um, get some investors, but the investors turned out to be let's just say, the wrong side of um, Shady. Hmm. And um, by 2007, whilst I was in China, they'd run up massive debts on the company and uh, I got out and um, the business was uh, bankrupt, I think, within six months. Yeah, that's a shame. It's an unfortunate story because the, the brand was actually expanding very rapidly. We were in the UK, we were in South Africa, we were, uh, we'd started to sell in, uh, in Asia, but... Um, well, these things happens. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a very sad chapter. But out of that came came very good things. So um, yeah, we just move on, and uh, I moved. I stayed in in China, and uh, ended up becoming uh, chief technical officer of um, two different companies. And I'm on the board now as a non-executive director of uh, several several large uh, carbon manufacturing companies up here. Cool. Yeah, I think. You're right in that having a presence in Asia seems to be a real strategic advantage for a lot of brands. And the ones who can't afford to have somebody there full time tend to find a manufacturer's representative or something like that that is sort of there at the factories on their behalf. I know you know way more than I do, but like I know there are brands who, if they didn't have somebody there, they could send their plans over and whatever they got back was what they got back. You know, without direct oversight, unfortunately, some of these factories would not necessarily follow 
the instructions very well. So I think that is a good. You're absolutely right, <laughs> and this this was something that clearly was even worse in the early late 1990s, early 2000s. It has somewhat matured now, but there are still significant issues to deal with throughout the industry, and it's not unique to the bicycle industry. I, I can obviously talk with some degree of authority about the bicycle industry because I've been here running companies for, as I say, nearly for over two decades now. Right. The industry, if we're just specifically talking about cycling, is a, is a highly tiered industry. And depending on the tier level you're on, and I'm talking about tiers in terms of both brand and manufacturer, and, and to a certain extent also designer, there are tiers in, in everything in life. There are the tier one brands, giant being number one, Taiwanese giant. Number two, three, four are two American brands, obviously Trek Specialized, Fido, and then Merida is um, another Taiwanese brand, which is, uh, which is very strong. So they're all basically the tier, tier one brands. And they have, uh, you know, they have big budgets. They, they command a very large market share. And uh, they largely have their either, either their own factories or shares in factories that make for them uh, under subcontract. So they're pretty well looked after. But it's the, it's the sub-tier one brands and factories that still have issues. And it's a minefield, like many businesses. If you don't live here and speak the language, and I mean, I'm also married, I have a family here, you also have to factor in significant cultural differences, which many people don't. They think it's just about business, which is a misnomer. That is not correct. I came up here initially thinking that Chinese factories were only interested in, you know, just the business aspect of it. But there's so much more cultural uh, influence in there that it's very hard for brands, individuals who don't really understand the culture to fully understand how the system works. Well, I think, you know, just a, a little bit of a corollary, right? Like before I started Bike Boomer, I had an energy drink business and I just thought, well, if we just make a really great energy drink, you know, something that tastes good, it's healthy and all this, like people would love it, right? What I didn't know was how the industry worked, right? Like I didn't know how distribution and retail slotting fees and, you know, like paying to be on the shelf of the stores and how the competition could essentially lock you out. Like it was all the things I didn't know and didn't understand that killed that business, right? Like the product was fantastic and people loved it, but that almost didn't even matter. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the things that people don't really understand or perceive that end up killing the brand because they don't, as you correctly said, they don't factor those things in. So they make very fundamental mistakes. And, and they don't even know it. <laughs> They don't even initially know it, but when they find out, they then have to try and cover it up in some way and try and make it better. And that's often where the real problems start. Right. Because again, I keep saying this, the bike industry is, is no different from any other industry. We are creating products for consumers and we either make very good ones, we make acceptable ones, or we make really bad ones. Now that depends on one's view of where you want to be in the market. Nobody wants to be seen to be making a bad product, but unfortunately, they are out there still. There's not many of them, but it's shades of grey. There are some very good products. There are some very poor products. Unless you're here and you know who you're dealing with and you've actually spent years going to factories, as we do, 
living, in fact, is not not just fly in, fly out, spend two or three days, and say, oh, I've been to China and I went to see my factory and everything was great. That's one of the biggest farces that goes on when people do that here. They are treated royally in hmm. many cases when they're here. I've actually sat in meetings for many years that after the client had arrived and had our board meeting and gone through all the production schedules and how they wanted it done, person leaves and everybody comes out and waves them goodbye. The engineers will come over to me and say in Chinese, who was that guy again? What company was he? What was he talking about? And they really don't know because, to be honest, the factory workers don't really care. Now, that has to a certain degree changed, but in certain factories, the factories themselves have no clue who the customer are. They don't care. They don't know. They don't want to know. It's just a product. Right. So let's fast forward a little bit. All of this experience, it seems to have given you an insight into how things are made and how brands aren't. But I think one of the, you know, to, to lead us into the launch of Next Gen Sports, it seems like you saw a lot of products and the team that you've assembled with Next Gen, who are a lot of industry veterans, and we'll, we'll talk about them in a minute. But it sounds like what you guys were seeing was too many small incremental steps not enough true innovation and and the limitations created by not having somebody there on the floor at the factories to make sure that the best possible products were being made. So what's like, give me some examples, you know, like what were you seeing that I guess pissed you off enough that you said, you know what, <laughs> we're going to launch our own company and do this better. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> I could give you, I could give you anecdotal stories uh, until you know midnight i'd bore everybody to tears these come up regularly one example this goes back quite a while now but there, there was the famous dyed black glass fiber so-called carbon fork episode i think it was around about 2007 2008 where a very large still in existence but now privatized it was a i'm not going to mention names obviously because a i don't want to get sued and the company has since improved i believe but it was a very large ex-Chinese state-owned, let's just call it a composite, carbon composite factory. And they were making all sorts of stuff at the time. And it was, put it this way, I would never use it. I would never take a customer there, even today. But they do make an in, immense amount of product for a lot of brands because they're so cheap. But that's to do with the scale of the place. But at the time, it was found they had a they had a major scandal where they were found that to get to the prices they were being asked, they were actually dyeing glass fiber and mixing it into the layup of, of what needs, well, should be a full carbon composite fork. And they were obviously failing disastrously in certain cases. And that's how they were found out when people started, like myself, were started to analyze them. Like we found that uh, they were basically cheating. Now, unfortunately, well, in, in one respect, fortunately, that doesn't happen as much these days. But unless you're in a factory, how do you actually know, specifically talking about composites, carbon composite, which is my area of expertise, the, the factory will often say, yes, we, we are getting our fabric from, there are, the big four are, not, well, the biggest one is, is Torre, Japanese, there's Mitsubishi, there's Toho, Terryfield, and another of, of lesser brands. And until recently, China uh, had a very large factory. That one just recently, um, Chinese government decided to uh, take it offline because they wanted the, uh, the material for the military, so they weren't going to sell it commercially anymore. But that's another story. 
how do you know when you leave that factory and you've done your little one hour tour that they are actually using the fabrics that you're they say they're going to how do you know for example that the pressures they're using and the curing times they're using and the resin systems in your prepreg are all correct because once it's cured it's actually quite difficult and unless you have facilities that companies that I run have and we can analyze these things and we do and it becomes a, a question of trust and unfortunately you're dealing in a country where trust is not always as um, giving as it should be and this comes back to our the question I raised before or the issue I raised before of cultural differences what a lot of people miss they may have heard about it but What's, what's generally referred to in the West with, with Asians, Chinese, Taiwanese, and other Asians is, is loss of face. Personal face, pride in oneself and one's family, is absolutely paramount throughout all of Chinese society. It's much more important than even money, to be honest. Loss of face is the single worst thing that can happen to you. It's the reason why many factories will never tell their clients that they're either going to be late they can't deliver on time. They've got a problem. The, you know, the factory burnt down. You, you won't hear about it. They will because they see it as being a loss of personal face. And when you live here, of course, I should just backtrack. One of the one of my companies. What we we have our own very experienced quality control managers that live still in China. I train some of them. Some of them are industry veterans, and we supply those people to major brands. And all they do seven days a week, 24-7, is they fly around factories doing quality control. And we have contracts with those brands to do that. So 100% quality control, and we don't have problems. I have never in 21 years had a product recall of any product. But I can give you experiences of many, many companies that have recalls, and they're their cause because of inexperience and, and often just pure incompetence because they shouldn't happen. You mentioned that fork, that the reason they were swapping out materials and creating a not safe product was to hit a certain price point. And, you know, I'm going to fill in a couple of holes from conversation, kind of like our pre-conversation conversation where, you know, you and some of the other people that are on your team now have sat in meetings where product managers and designers are like, well, you know, we, we want to spec this, we want to do this. And then the bean counters come in and be like, no, we can't because we need to hit this price point. So if you add five cents here, it's adding, you know, whatever, a dollar, five dollars to the end product. And then it just blah, 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 blah. So they not so much from a manufacturing standpoint, but more just like, okay, we can't make the exact bike we really want to make because it would cost too much. So we're going to just compromise here change this part here, not do this fancy design that we really love and works better there because it just costs too much. And I think it seems like that was some of the impetus for next gen is like, we could do all those things that we really want to do because, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you're cutting out the distributor, you're cutting out the retailer. So all of a sudden you have that extra margin. Is that kind of what was led you in that direction? That's part of it. Yeah, definitely. Look, next gen, we're all engineers. I've been in a, you know, I've been in a practicing an engineer now, a composite engineer for 21 years. I've made, not personally made, but I've been responsible for the manufacture of probably close to, well, over half a million composite bike frames and forks and handlebars for maybe 
30, 40 different brands around the world. Wheels, probably closer to six, 700,000 sets of composite wheels. So we're engineers, guys like Bill Shook, American classic owner. Bill is without doubt one of the best wheel engineers, designers in the, in the alloy space I've ever met. Bill made, without doubt in my professional opinion, the best alloy rims ever. But his brand went broke. He couldn't reach the price point that the industry says they need to remain competitive in the face of a growing number of Chinese and Taiwanese brands flooding the market with just cheap wheels. Bill would not compromise his standards. So if you wanted a great wheel, you bought an American classic, great American brand designed by Americans, okay, manufactured in Taiwan. But Bill was here. Bill used to design everything and machine it himself. That doesn't happen with very many brands. So the the, the issue is you're, you're correct. I have sat in dozens and dozens and dozens of meetings where the, let's say the tier one brands have their own engineers. Tier two, not so much. They come to people like me and guys like Paul, Paul Lou, and different people, depending on the, the product. And there's lots of us. When I say lots, around the world. In Taichung, we're basically referred to as the Taichung Mafia because we're all, we all, we're all friends. We're all, we all run our own businesses. We're freelancers. So we're guns for hire, basically. So a tier two, tier three brand will come to us. We'll design something for them, get paid for it. And then we, they, either they go and find a factory or we, we find it for them. The problem is that the world in terms of material science, manufacturing technology doesn't ever stand still. But improvements generally cost money. You have to retool. You have to change the way you're doing things. Materials become, become more and more and more advanced. And we are living in a fantastically fast-moving material science world right now. But the vast majority of product that people are buying from the HSBs, high street brands, are exactly the same as when I started in 1996. They haven't changed very much at all. So we will often make a presentation of a brand new material or a brand new way to do something, which is an improvement, a demonstrable improvement. I'm not talking about marketing. This is the biggest bugbear that I have <laughs> with the industry at the moment. So you make a presentation of the data, the facts, you provide samples to the engineering staff, the design staff, and they all say, this is great. I can work with this. This is fantastic. So the engineers are generally on board, but they know in the back of their mind, if this costs another, let's say, $5 for a, a frame or $3 on a fork, the accounting department are going to go nuts. So they politely, you, you generally get a refusal that comes through and said, oh, we've done some testing and we don't think it's going to be the right. It's nonsense. The materials are there. The science is there. There just is this, not this desire to for risk and for potential loss of market share by having when the product eventually hits the retail store, you're now perhaps $30 more expensive because of the way the whole sales chain works. So that is one of the biggest difficulties of trying to introduce new technology. Some companies, and I'll give you an example, I'll give you a very recent, very, very pertinent example. There is a material out there that is a carbon fiber. It's just called spread toe. I won't go into what that means, but I'll tell you it's the carbon fiber that was used to make the rotor blades for the Mars helicopter. Hmm. That's how good it is. 
Like the TechStream stuff, right? Yeah. Other companies make it now as well. SigmaTex make it. But TechStream were the company that pioneered it, Swedish TechStream. I've been using it since 2009. Adam Gans at uh, Bauer and then uh, Nike, one of our team. Adam wrote the book on using spread toe fabrics in the ice hockey business. He's recognized as the world's number one. He was the head of Nike. He's now a member of, of NextGen. He brings an enormous amount of experience in material science. But those blows. Now, we've been able to offer spread toe to the bike industry for at least the last 12 years. And the only brand, major brand, that's ever done it was Jim Felt. I was going to say, Felt's been using it in their frames for a while. Some smaller brands have. If you look at some good quality rear disc wheels for time trialing, they use spread toe. The brands know it works, but it costs more. It's more difficult to work with. It does have benefit. We use lots of it in next gen because it's simply better than regular either woven or UD fabrics under certain conditions. I'm not going to go all technical here because it, you know we don't have time for that. But Felt were the only ma- major brand that tried it. Everybody else said, no, we know it's better, but we're not going to because it will make us more expensive. So that's a very clear example. And you guys are using it in your carbon wheels, which you've got some enduro and some gravel, aero gravel wheels that are available for sale now. Yes, but they're, they're, they're not just carbon. They are, it's a spread toe, but it's actually what's known as a, a polypropylene polyolefin, which is a, the world's lightest and strongest fiber. Hmm. And we mix that with, we weave it with carbon fiber. And the reason we do that on certain wheels is to significantly increase uh, shock impact strength because it also lowers the weight for those that understand terminology like uh, vertical compliance. It gives us a slightly softer ride. But the reason we use it only on certain wheels, we don't use it on road wheels. We have other new materials coming through, which we're using on our, we have a brand new um, super light road climbing wheel, almost ready to market, which just blows everything else in the market away in terms of its its weight, its low weight, its stiffness. The materials we've used, they are all industry first. Nobody's ever used these products before. Cool. But specifically, the, the V7 Aero Gravel and the V3 Super Enduro wheels have just amazing impact resistance over a traditional full carbon composite wheel. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the, there is no such thing in the sports world as an unbreakable product. There will always be somebody out there that can say, oh, this guy Farrell said these things are, you know, bullet. They're not bulletproof. They are a an order of magnitude better at absorbing impact than a traditional carbon only rim. So we believe it's the future. Yes, the materials are more expensive, but because of our distribution chain that we have, we're actually cheaper than comparable quality, recognized quality brands. We look at what's in the market. We benchmark all of them because one of the, one of the things we absolutely insist on at NextGen is that anything that we bring to market and we we say is better, we prove it. We right. prove it by way of hard data, by videotape evidence. We don't have a marketing company. I never will because I think marketing right now is is the biggest enemy of what's happening in the sports industry completely. It's turned from a genuine engineering technical industry a glorified marketing exercise and that's that's the biggest single gripe we as as of today 29 
individual associates and about six companies associates. We all share that. We all believe that we just need to be honest with our customers and say, look, there's nothing wrong with an HSB. High street brands, there's nothing wrong with them. We're not saying there's anything wrong with them. We're just saying that there are different, better ways that aren't more expensive to buy. They just perform better. And we believe the public has a right to access those products. So NextGen was set up for that reason. Cool. And I think, I'm um, going to see if I can wrap up the price part of it. So you pretty much said, you know, like the going direct to consumer is what allows you to offer these products. The next generation materials and designs and all that at a competitive price is simply by going direct. So one of the, I think, goals of the company is to be able to do that and be disruptive. And I wouldn't say that direct to consumer as a business model is all that disruptive anymore. It's it's almost become normal. But in terms of products, you know, like the first few products that you guys have put out, they don't look super disruptive, right? What categories in the cycling world do you think are most right for like true kind of almost crazy out there disruption? Well, first of all, we are not a cycling company. We are a sports company. The name deliberately is Next Gen Sports because even though in the early phases, we started talking about this as a group of concerned designers, developers. About three three years ago, when we saw certain things happening that none of us were very comfortable with, the words deceptive were being banded around and just not truthful in advertising and stuff. So there was this general feeling amongst seasoned veterans that the industry was going a little bit off the rails in certain areas. And we, you know, if you want to dive into that more, I, I'm I'm happy to do so. But yeah, I mean, give me one example. Well, I think the classic one at the moment is 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 all centered around wheels. In the last few years, most this again comes back to culture. Most Asian supply, I'll just use the word Asian because now obviously uh, we have factories in in Vietnam, Cambodia, bulk still in China and Taiwan. So let's just call it Asia. When they start these factories, uh, they usually start making one product. In my particular example, I was headhunted in 2007 by a company that was one of the largest decal manufacturers both for bikes tennis rackets, badminton rackets. And that company had about six factories around China and Taiwan. And they looked with envy, sorry, not the brand envy, the with envy at the products that their stickers were going on. And they said, we could be doing that. We don't know anything about carbon fiber. Well, we can, we can hire somebody that can do that. And that ended up being me. But they were a, they were a transfer sticker company, decal company, who wanted to become a carbon factory. So this is what's been happening. Now, again, I, I don't want to I won't mention mention names, but there is a, a once very large, not so large now, Taiwanese rim manufacturer who started their own wheel brand. They were making OE, OEM rims for many years and then saying to themselves, we can go and get some spokes and we can go and buy some Taiwanese hubs. We can be a wheel brand. Now, they've been out there quite a while. It's a brand you've probably never heard of, but in Asia, the guys buy them and I'm not saying they're either good or bad. I don't know. I've never ridden one. I've never tested one. But that was the way the the industry was going. So here's a company that specializes in one thing, but suddenly now it's competing with its own customers. Now, then there is a a large-ish Taiwanese hub manufacturer. They decided to do exactly the same. They're making hubs. They're making hubs for a number of brands. It's a reasonable quality hub. Oh, we could make more money if we were to design and build our own wheels. So now we'll start a wheel brand. So they did. Now they're competing against the major wheel companies. 
this all happened six, seven, ten years ago. Just in the last two years, it's got to the stage now where there's a there's a Taiwanese spoke company has done exactly the same. But what they've done is they've hired, let's just say, a marketing company in the UK to be the face of this brand, but it's all owned by Taiwanese. It's a Taiwanese company using, yeah, it's owned by, by a spoke company. So in my, my view, look, I might be old-fashioned, but to me, it's kind of deceptive. It's not being truly honest with their customers. It's not, you know, it's not unique to this brand. It happens a lot. You know, the, the age of the, you know, Alibaba is, is recognized. You know, you can get anything. Everybody knows it. You can buy whatever you like on Alibaba. And contrary to popular belief, not everything on Alibaba is fake. I won't go into the reasons why not, but let's just call it oversupply of certain products for certain brands often will find themselves on Alibaba. Now, the problem is which ones are genuine, which ones are fake, because the Chinese love to copy famous brands because they don't think it's wrong. They think it's a compliment. Uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, yeah, right? <laughs> it, you know, you're, you're, you're famous. Why, why would you worry about little, little old me? I'm giving you a compliment. So this is what's happening. And, and what it's become now is a race to the bottom purely on price. And then there's this fancy marketing story, which is often to people like me who actually have been in the game a long time, it becomes laughable. We as a group of engineers, let's say wheel experts or frame experts or whatever you want to call us, we'll read this stuff that appears in the press and some of it is just laughable. It really is. We could drive a bus through some of the statements that are made. It's all hyperbole, like, you know, buy this set of wheels and you'll do Hawaii Ironman and you'll take an hour off your time. I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously. There's no data to bank it up. There's usually a nice fancy graphic, which they've pulled off Google somewhere, or they've got a design agency to make up. And they'll talk in general terms about some scientific stuff, but it's all marketing. It's just marketing. And people in the industry, when I say people, I mean veterans of the industry. Next gen altogether, we've got over 400 years of industry specific experience. Some of these companies have been going less than two years, two or three years and have no experience at all. They've been a hub maker for 10 years, or they've been a rim maker for 15 years, or they've been a spoke maker for 20 years, but that's all they've done. And suddenly, they're a brand, and they're a cheap brand, a very cheap brand. And it's it's really destroying, we believe, the industry, and we, we think it needs to be called out. So that's kind of where the industry is, unfortunately. And there there are alternatives, there are, you know, there are better ways. And I don't, I, I just believe that the paying consumer needs to know the true story, where their products come from, who designed them, who made them, where they're made, where's the data that shows me, you know, I can believe this. They're not doing it. None of these companies do it because they don't want the public to know. They'll just come up with, a, oh, our product passes so-and-so test. Yeah, but where does it fail? We're not going to tell you. We don't publish that. We do. We not only publish it, we'll show you the test. So we, we don't have anything to hide. Anybody wants to take issue with what we do. The data's there. If anybody wants to disagree with it, we're happy to debate that. But we're certainly not going to hire a marketing company to make up nice sounding, a ridiculous sounding name and, and some process that doesn't exist and some material that doesn't exist. And they've got this and they've developed this and they've done this. It's, it's all just marketing. It's, it's, it's very sad. So it sounds like to me that the disruptive, um, you kind of use an air quotes, aspect of next gen sports is that you're taking, you're bringing to the table legitimate 
research and development, the latest tech and materials and stuff. So you're not necessarily reinventing the wheel per se. You're just making a really good wheel that is actually backed up with, you know, the performance claims are backed up with data, the materials are backed up yes. with data and all that. Um, precisely, precisely. We, what we're saying is, look, given best practice, given best practice materials, given best practice, uh, you know, engineering, given best practice design, here's a product which we will stand against anything else in the market at this price that it's up to the consumer to decide. We're not holding a gun to anybody's head. It's a free market. People can decide to buy a cheap Taiwanese, Chinese wheel, or they can they can decide to buy a very high quality American. You know, we make our wheels in America. We're proudly an American company. We specify Industry 9 hubs on most of our wheels at the moment, not all. We hand build our wheels in America. We offer a five-year unconditional warranty because we know our wheels are good. Nobody does that, but we stand behind our product. If it breaks for a legitimate reason, when I say legitimate, I mean from manufacturing or poor design, why shouldn't we replace it? Why should we argue with a customer that, oh, well, you didn't have your original receipt and, you know, it, it's two years and one day since you, broke, since, since you bought it, so we're not going to honor that anymore. To me, that's, it's just not right. Right. Okay, I want to share a little story, and I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this just for time and also because this was literally a conversation I had with some of the guys at SRAM drivetrains. I think when the original one by 11 Eagle Group launched. And the question was, you know, like when I first started mountain biking, I was on a triple, right? Triple chain ring setup. And then they launched the two by. And then, you know, years later, they launched one by. And now we're at a one by 52, right? And that's, <laughs> that's just normal. But when the first time, <laughs> when that first one by 42 came out and that 42 tooth cog was basically as big as a brake rotor it looked <laughs> weird right and so I, I was talking to the guys because i'm like clearly this has been a development for years you know sram's product development cycle tends to be something like three to five years out so they know right now what they're probably going to be launching three to five years from now so when they launched the two by they kind of knew it was going to be one by and i'm like why didn't you guys just jump to that <laughs> why, why waste our time because I've literally been at their headquarters and seen a commercial dumpster full of front derailleur and front derailleur parts. And they're just going to get scrapped now because nobody wants them. And so the answer, their answer was basically, it's like, look, if we had gone from a triple to a one by 50, people would have freaked out. They would have said, this is stupid. Look at that. It doesn't make any sense. They couldn't. They had to bring us along on this journey from a three by seven to a one by 12, because we couldn't make that leap. And so I, I'm just kind of curious your take on that. But also, like, generally speaking, do you have some disruption that you're just sitting on because we're not ready for it yet? <laughs> well, the short answer is, there's two parts of this. We are sitting on some technology in various sports, which is going to be a category killing. Unfortunately, it's going to be the end to certain products that are right now very commonplace. Um, the technology is already developed. It's just not known about yet. We we have worldwide patents on it. In several categories, we've got products which are going to be, let's just say, probably three to five years ahead of anything else that's currently in the market. I'm specifically referring to, you've obviously seen, you've already tested the, the new 3D saddles that have come out from both Physic and, uh, and Specialized. I can't say too much about it, but I'd say we're 
probably two to three years ahead of those products in what we're doing. So what's the holdup in launching that? <laughs> well, to get back to your SRAM example, look, that explanation is one way of looking at it. And I'm sure they can justify in their own minds. And like I don't work for SRAM, they've, they've got their own business to run and they make a good product. But what I would say is that every year we've got Eurobike, we have Interbike, barring COVID, the products you see on those floors are already obsolete. Everything, including vehicles, furniture, clothing, has built-in obsolescence. That's the way manufacturing works. You're never selling the product you could be making. You're selling the product you did make. And then you're right. The lead time for companies such as um, SRAM, Shimano, Campy is three to five years. This is what I do. I do a lot of e-bike work now. And if you'd have asked me five years ago whether I'd be doing e-bikes, I'd say, why on earth would somebody with my background doing high-performance you know, world tour bikes and, and track bikes for the Olympics, why would I be messing around with e-commuter bikes, which basically are bent steel drain pipes with a dirty great lead acid battery on the back? I wasn't interested. I thought they were a joke. I still do to a certain extent. But when you apply yourself to it, I've just finished a, a brand new UK company's bike. This thing is absolutely space age, state of the art, the best of the best. I'm very, very proud of the bike. But already, it's just about to launch commercially. But we're already working on the third model, which is even more futuristic. Material science is, is something that is really my driving passion. And there, there are going to be significant changes in the way that composite frames are made, manufacturers and the materials they're made of coming over the next few years. Most of your listeners have heard of the word graphene. Some of them know what it is. Up until right now, the word has been a terribly misused by marketing companies. The stuff they're using is not graphene. It's what's called GO or um, RGO. It's not pure graphene. But pure graphene, the price of pure graphene, which is the real two-dimensional stuff, is now at a price. We are already using it in some of our composite products, and it has absolutely amazing benefits in a number of different ways. But, of course, you can't see it because it's atomic. So you have to explain to people that it's really in there and you have to do it by real data and showing that your team are real graphene experts. And that's why we have people like Adrian Nixon on our team, who is one of the world's leading experts in graphene at the University of Manchester, where graphene was uh, isolated. It's mind-blowing what's coming through. Again, we could do an entire episode on built-in strain and stress gauges that we're working on, We've again, to develop, which will end up going into various pieces of sporting equipment to actually monitor the performance of that piece of equipment, not just the the athlete, but the equipment itself, how it's performing, is it performing as it should do. That data is all going up to the cloud, back to the brand, so that they can design better products. Now, whether they will or not, because it's going to add cost, is to be seen. But the products we already have. Yeah. So along with your business model, you, know, you mentioned the wheel, the Asian wheel manufacturers or quote unquote brands as an example of marketing, right? Where somebody made a hub and then they decided they were just going to like buy a rim and spokes and build a wheel or buy, you know, they made a rim and bought the other parts and made a wheel and essentially started competing with their customers. I almost see NextGen is a little bit doing the same thing because here you are as a group of individual consultants that work with different brands to develop things. But now you're combining the best knowledges 
and manufacturing practices and factories to create products. So you're sort of competing with your customers as well, no? Well, you could see it that way. Fortunately, most of our clients don't because they've been given the option to use these materials and this technology, but most have declined to do so. This is the major issue. It's sitting there, available in the market, being used in other industries, not necessarily sporting goods, but it's not like we're saying, okay, you can't, as a client of ours, you cannot buy this product. We are more than happy to develop such products for people, and we and we do in many cases, but they choose for various their own reasons not to, or they will be over time. But as I say, it's built in obsolescence. You can't always bring out today what you'd like to because it's too big a leap. Too big a leap for consumers or too big a leap for the brands? Because I feel like that's where you have the opportunity, right? Is you could you guys could just launch it or would people freak out? Look, our market at NextGen are what we call, you know, sport, true sports enthusiasts. They're not casual buyers who are just going to go and buy a bike because they want to lose a few pounds. Our market is unashamedly, let's call them a sporting snob or a sporting enthusiast. They take a great deal of pride in the products that they buy. They want to make a statement with that and they want better performance. If they believe the story and buy the product, and they like it, those people will be the best ambassadors we could ever have. We are not sponsoring, even though in the past I have done with my brand, you know, sponsored teams and stuff. We're, we're businessmen, all right? We're in this industry to make money. Our main businesses, fortunately, pay us well. So we're not doing this just to make money. We're doing it because we can. People often ask me, at my age, why on earth am I starting a fifth brand at the age of 66? The answer simply is I can, and I get to work with some of the best engineers, material scientists, technicians in the world. None of us have egos. None of us are doing this because we want to be famous. Most of your listeners have never, ever heard of my name, and that's deliberate. People like me are the guys in the shadows. We are not the brand. We have a saying in our companies, the brand is everything. We cannot be famous. The brand is the famous part. We are the guys that hide in the shadows advise the brands, do development work for them, make designs for them. But the moment we step out of the shadows, as we've done with NextGen, we're now saying, okay, here, here we are. These are products that we can do by ourselves, but we're still, we're still designing uh, for countless other brands and doing the stuff they want us to do. Because I was asked this just today, are we going to do, are we going to bring out a NextGen frame? And the answer is no, that is not on our agenda for bicycles. We may do a very high quality track bike sometime in the future because uh, one of our team, Dimitri Kadzanis, ex-head of the UCI Technical Committee, he is like a world master of track bikes. And uh, I do a lot of track bikes. It makes sense because we already do track wheels, track handlebars. But are we going to start a full bicycle brand? No, absolutely not. So I want to give the people who are sticking around a little bit of a quick bonus. I think one of the most interesting aspects of your business is that you're allowing anybody, you know, like I could sketch something on a napkin and if I thought it was a good idea and you thought it was a good idea, I could send it in and you guys might actually put the team efforts and brain power behind it and make it. But listening to who you have, and you guys have Paul Lou, Bill Shook, who some of the cyclists might recognize. And then there's people like Demetrius Katsanis from Team Sky and UCI, Andrea Invernizzi, and apologies if I'm butchering their names, but, you know, from Data Chai. And then, you know, a lot of the people that you mentioned before from other sports categories. I mean, you've got some top 
brain power in there. So for the average cyclist who thinks they have a good idea that wants, or any, you know, any athlete that in any sport has a good idea, they want to send it in, have you guys consider making it and, you know, working with them. What's, what are the guidelines? What should they send you? Like a sketch? Should they try and get some uh, patent protection first? What's, what's the process? Okay. Well, there, there is a slight caveat, which I'll, which I'll be very upfront and clear about. We have right now, if you go to the website, you'll see some of the associates, but uh, there are some confidential ones. But the reason they're confidential is these guys either already work in the industry for other brands, and you might say, well, that's a conflict of interest. We have very, very clear guidelines. Anybody from any of the sports industry, we cannot and will not accept somebody who's working for a major brand bringing us a competing product to that in the category they already work in. That's a complete and utter no-no. Not only is it unethical, but it's probably illegal. And it would breach, it would open up all sorts of legal issues for us and for them. So if you are currently working for Giant or Shimano or Trek, do not send me a sketch of a brand new time trial bike because we're just not even going to respond because it's unethical. We've got enough ideas between us to be going on with. So that, that's number one. If you happen to work for Shimano or Trek and you've got a great idea for a piece of rock climbing equipment and it doesn't conflict with your contract, some contractors, I'm sure you're aware, have a everything you think about, dream about, sleep in belongs to us. But some contracts are very specific. You're working in the ice hockey business. You cannot design an ice hockey blade or helmet or knee pads but you can go and design a new tennis racket. That's no problem. So first of all, I'll just put that out there because we're not poaching anybody else's idea. We won't touch anybody's idea if we think it's already existing art or comes from some sort of nefarious thing. Now, having said that, I'm a great believer that there is this enormous pool of talent out there of people who have some great ideas, but they simply don't know, have the ability. They've got a day job. They've had this nagging idea about a great new scuba snorkel or a tennis rack you know we always joke about you know the left-handed tire lever <laughs> okay so the first thing they do is do not send me a drawing do not send me a patent do not send me any technical information on our website there's very clear guidelines you just literally put some words into the box on the website and say hi my name's jim i'm i'm from lithuania and I've got this great idea for a new blah. Are you interested? Now, in a core of initial associates, there's about eight of us, we'll look at it and say, do we think the world needs a left-handed tire leader? The answer will probably be no. So you'll get a very polite request saying, thank you so much for the inquiry. Right now, it's not a product we're looking at, but we wish you well. Every now and again, we're going to get an absolute gem that none of us thought of. And believe you me, the simpler it is, the better it's going to be, and the more people are going to go, wow, why didn't anybody else think about this? That's what NextGen is all about. What's the process for that? Like, Have you gotten any of those, and how are you working uh, yes, with that we, person? We actually already have, yeah. yeah. We, we got a beauty just uh, about two months ago. So how do you work with that individual? Okay, so that individual is not in the sports industry. I think he's an accountant, but he's, he's obviously passionate about his sports. Now, he has no, no manufacturing, marketing, or brand information. He's just got this idea, and he's got some, he had some drawings. So we said, yeah, this is kind of cool. 
Now, what we will do is we'll send a we'll send a NDA non non disclosure agreement, which means we in it means we can't copy it. It belongs to him. Every one of our products actually belongs to the developer. Doesn't belong to next gen. It belongs to the developer. Some of our wheels, you know, are split between teams. We normally work as teams. We have a head designer, material scientist, and then a manufacturing expert. We sit down and look at it. We see if there's any conflicting patents we can find. And if not, we go back to the individual and say, right, we think you've got a good idea. Now, what would you like to do with this? Do you have the resources to finish the design? Yes, I do. Great. So you're now lead project on this. It's your design and you can design it. Do you have the necessary skills, money, and knowledge about where to make it, the materials? No, I don't. Okay, we can help you with it. So now the team gets involved. So it becomes in the end a joint project. But the the bottom line is what happens to the, the product when it reaches the market is that the MSRP, whatever the final selling price is, the owner of the developer and owner of the, the product gets the lion's share of the return. This is completely new in our world. The designer developer usually gets a fixed fee, whether it's a good design and sells a million units or a really terrible one and sells 20 units, they get paid the same. So with our policy, we have it next gen, the designer developer makes the most money out of the product. They actually get a very large percentage of the MSRP. That's the first time that's ever been done that I know of. Nice. And are you, you're strictly sticking to sports categories, sports products? Only sports. We're next gen sports. We, we already have been approached to, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, I mean, we may end up doing some clothing. It's technically a sports category. It's something I don't, you know, I've, I've been involved in. It's not something at the moment we're, we're seriously considering. At the moment, we're just looking at very focusing on, on things that we know there are improvements that can be made. They're not being done purely because of price, because they're price sensitive. You've got to get this thing to market for X dollars, otherwise you're not in the game. Okay, do we think we can bring a better product, demonstrably better, not marketing better, demonstrably better for a similar price? Do we have to be a little bit more? Can we be a little bit under? But we consider ourselves to be a premium brand at a regular price. That's what we can do. If we can bring a new product to market under those criteria, then we'll do it if we think there is a solid market for that product. I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots of ideas out there, but you know the the the, the flat bottom wheel and the left-handed tire lever, not really stuff we're interested in. But there, there are some very smart people out there. They just don't happen to work in in our industry as their day job. That doesn't disqualify them from being quite talented designers or engineers. So why not? Cool. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for your time. And I think it was a really interesting look at how the industry works too. So appreciate it. Well, yeah, it's a, look, it's, um, it, it is an interesting industry. It's a bit of a closed club. As I say, I, I live most of my life now in Taiwan, in Taichung, which is the center, the global center of the bike industry. Most of the brands have offices here. We all know each other, even though we work for competing brands and companies. It's one big club. As I say, we're collectively known as the sort of Taichung Mafia. And it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very friendly club, but it's, it's very professional. You know, nobody talks too much about what they do, but we're all friends. It's friendly rivalry and um, it's a great industry to be in. I just, I just hope that, uh, you know, next gen over the next, uh, you know, few years can carve out our own little, little niche and, 
people at least, you know, go to the website, have a look at what we're doing. And if they've got questions, um, just fire away. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. So is your brain rolling with product ideas now? Some part or component that you've been dreaming up but didn't know how to get it made? Or are you just not quite sure what to make of how our industry works? Paul's talk about knowing the manufacturer is kind of how I feel about going to the farmer's market. When I know where my food is coming from and the people who grow and raise it, I have more trust in its quality. The further removed from that I am, the less faith I have that it's high quality and that the manufacturer has my best health and interest at heart. It's the same for bikes, I think. The more layers there are between marketing and third parties and factories that might never be seen, the less we really know about how our products are made. Even though it's rare to have a brand name product fail these days, it's definitely enough to make me more inquisitive into how much control any particular brand really has over their end product. We'll be testing some of NextGen's wheels with that spread toe text stream material. So be sure to follow Bike Rumor on social media and subscribe to our email newsletter so you don't miss a beat. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. If you like this and want to check out more great interviews with cycling industry leaders and personalities, head to bikerumor.com slash podcast, or just search for and subscribe to the Bike Rumor podcast on your favorite player. Thanks a ton for listening. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.